You're listening to the Restoration Church Bible Study. Join us each week as Gloria Lee takes us verse by verse through the Old Testament. Good morning. Today we're going to finish the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, which ends the uh, reign of Nehemiah. And last week we were talking about the things that had happened when they made areas of decision, and they had made these three areas of decisions. One, we will be faithful to God when it comes to our romantic relationship. Two, we will be faithful to God when it comes to doing business. And three, we will be faithful to God when it comes to supporting God's work. In Nehemiah, last week, 10 through 14, they realized that they were no longer faithful when it came to doing God's business because they were no longer paying and the paying their tithes and their and their uh, other just gifts to the church. Therefore, the singers had to go back to their homes and do their own living, and it was a big mess. And so Nehemiah had been gone for ten to twelve years, gone back to Persia, and he was a cupbearer for the king there again. And he comes back to Jerusalem and finds this condition in these three areas. In verses 15 through 22, we see the other two parts. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dealt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. (laughs) 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 He's going to get them, isn't he? He was serious. So from that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Each time he talks to them, he says, Remember me, O God, for something, because he feels like somehow maybe he had not done what he should have done. 
to keep them from sinning, oh. although he did all I, that I could see that he could have done. Oh. He was but wonderful. You know, I think what's awesome is this is, again, this is uh, Nehemiah as a ruler. Yes. Uh, that that um, that conviction when things aren't being done right in the house of God, when things are out of order, when you're administratively gifted, you know, and, and you're not at your gate and things go the array, they go crazy. And he's coming in having to straighten it all out again. Well, just the mere fact that he thought everything was settled, so he went off. That's right. Is that, well, okay, everything is good here, and only to come find out that it wasn't. Oh. How disappointing. They let Tobiah, you know. Oh. Right. My goodness. And I think also he's saying, you know, God, just, just remember me for all the good things I've done, and don't remember me for the things that happened that were bad. Yeah. So the Sabbath was being ignored. Um, on the Sabbath day, when they were supposed to rest and trust in God, here they were buying and selling and working and doing all other kinds of things in disobedience to God's clear command in the covenant that they had made just 10 or 12 years before that. So there's nothing really wrong with buying and selling only when that desire comes before God. That's when it's bad. So the New Testament makes it clear that we are not under that law of the Sabbath that they were under, under that old covenant, but we certainly are under the same obligation to honor God on the Sabbath, making it more important than making money or spending money. And then when Nehemiah threatened, you do it again, I will lay hands on you, he did not mean that he was going to gently put his hand on him and pray for him. No. He was going to get with it with him. And he must have been a man of some some statues that he could, you know, Come in and like, hey. could take care of them. Um, verse 30, 23 through 31. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So I contended with them. Now listen to the things that he does. He says, I contended with them. I cursed them. I struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to your, their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing of all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sins of Jodea, the son of Jolea, the son of Elshabib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Remember Sanballat? He was one of those that did not want the wall built and tried to do everything he could do. Therefore, I drove him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleared, 
cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed time. So in the years that Nehemiah had been away, the Israelites had resumed their practice of intermarrying with the pagan tribes that were in the land. And so Ashdod, so would that be Philistine women? Yes. And the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Ash, those that practiced worshiping Ashdod, all of those. What was Ashdod? And it said, so I contended with them, cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them swear. Now remember in Ezra, when he came in, he was building the temple, and he got upset because they were in sin. He pulled out his own beard and his own hair. Well, Nehemiah... He, he did it to the others. Man, he didn't do it for hate, himself. He did it to the others. And he considered uh, this to be the most important sin that they did. The one which varying into other uh, religions. Ungodly romances. So God had said no to uh, this and that example of Solomon, the reason Solomon fell was because his ungodly relationships with ungodly women, women, pagan women. That's all the kind yes. they got Samson too. Yes, and if we see that, that Solomon could do it, it could happen to him, it certainly could have happened to anyone else because so Solomon God, was wise, wasn't he? That's yes. some Dagon, the fish guy, subducing spirits. Mm-hmm. Yes. Water spirits. Dagon, the fish guy. Was it? Ashdod. Ashdod was the fish. Yeah. With the little Pope's miter. Yes. All right, verse 31b. Remember me, O God, for good. So God, just remember me for all the good things I've done. Don't remember me for for making them swear and pulling out their hair and all that kind of thing. Remember the good things. Yeah. So he, he certainly had a sense of failure, I think, by this time because he thought everything was set up and it the wasn't. He didn't come back and find it a mess. Yes, exactly the way he, they were when he came in the first time. I think about Moses on the mountain and the glory of God coming down and seeing that. And, you know, in Nehemiah 10, he had made the people promise, do not have ungodly romantic relationships. Do not buy and sell on the Sabbath. Do not fail to support the work of God with money. And yet, here's 10, it's the same thing. 10 or 12 years later, here they are in the same sins that they vowed to stop. You know, that, 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 let me just say this, that it it gives you a good perspective about uh, what you think about Nehemiah. That gives you a new light of looking at him. He was a very strong administrative gifting. And for him to have people swear and they there had to have been some fear there because of his because of his mm-hmm. office, because mm-hmm. of how he walked, how he presented himself, mm-hmm. he, you know, and his authority that he walked in. That to even have people say, Okay, 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 you know, I'll, I'll swear, I'll swear by God. And I'll pull your hair out of your beard. Yeah, just think about <laughs> My gosh, that gives us a whole new light of uh, Nehemiah, huh? Yeah, he's a lot stronger than what we really thought about, huh? He was. In Nehemiah 10, 39, the people promised, we will not neglect the house of our Lord. 
And yet here they are. He says, why is the house of God neglected? Well, it was neglected because they didn't keep their promise. And this really makes a point for people. Laws, vows, covenants, promises are utterly useless to stop sin. It is. They're useless. Well, we're no match. I don't think we're a match with principalities and rulers of darkness. You know, our flesh. But back then, wasn't covenants, vows, and and uh, promises? They didn't keep none of them. Well, I know, but did they. I, I would think they'd have a, uh, a greater value than they do now. Well, that was the only thing that they knew, and yet they they okay, couldn't do it. it. They, they needed Jesus' blood and then they needed the Holy Ghost. That is right, because Romans 8 3, who has that? Do you have that thought? We need, we need the Holy Ghost and power. Yeah. Was it? No, I think it was Romans 8 3. 8 3, okay. 8 3, and it says, For what the law could, do, could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Condemn sin in the flesh. Okay. So it was Jesus only, believing in him. There it is. That that was the same thing that you said, Ken. Only the grace of God alive in us can keep us, give us that power to overcome sin. Absolutely. Laws cannot do it. Rules can't do it. Promises. Mm-hmm. Our best intentions fall short. And do you know why? All those things make us look to, the, to ourselves. We have to do something. We have to do something. No, Christ did it. He did it. He did it all. We can't do it. So we are not saved by some vow we make. We're saved by the grace of God through Jesus. So that ends Nehemiah. Any questions or comments on this? Oh, that is great. Okay. So what we're going to do next is we're going to study the prophets. That is the next area that we're going to study. I want to tell you a little bit about prophets before we actually get into it. Uh, the prophets were men raised up by God, and they it was in the time of decline and apostasy where they did not believe anymore in Israel. And they were primarily revivalist. And we see in the Old Testament, they would have a revival, and then they would slide back, and then they'd have another revival, and then they would slide back. And so that's what they were, revivalists, speaking on behalf of of God to the heart and to the conscience of the people in Israel. They were more than fortune tellers. They were called fortune tellers, but not in a bad way. But they were more than that. They were men raised up by God when the priest or the king could not uh, do what they were supposed to do, when they were no longer worthy to lead the people in a righteous way. And they spoke of events in the far-off future, but they also spoke about events right then, what were happening right then. And they had to speak in this manner in order to qualify for the name of prophet. They had to speak to the present and to the future. And if they did not speak that way, and if their prophecy in the 
present time was not fulfilled exactly, they were considered false prophets. And they were treated that way. It had to be done precisely the way they said it. Okay. Good. So the prophetic books are filled with events that are local and fulfilled and then that are not yet fulfilled. One of the greatest types of the fact that men were speaking the words of God is that hundreds of prophecies at this time were fulfilled just that they had been spoken, literally filled. Okay. You know, men cannot guess the future. No. And so fulfilled prophecy is one of the infallible proofs that it was verbal inspiration from the scripture when they spoke. The predictive element, uh, one of the commentators says, is the peculiar and particular contribution of these men of God. Now, we had prophets before this time, and we've had prophets after the time. However, uh, these still have to be fulfilled, just like they have said. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, is the last book of prophecy that we have for the future. The prophets were nationalistic in that they kept their prophecies most of the time just for Israel and Judah, that area. They rebuked sin. They warned the nations. They had tears and they had uh, fires in their speech so that it was not really all doom and gloom, but they looked to the future when they felt like the day of the Lord was going to come. And we're going to see that day of the Lord over and over and over again in the prophecies of the, of the prophets here. All of them looked through the darkness into what was coming in the light, how it was going to be coming. The Savior, the Sovereign was going to come. And they saw that millennial kingdom, and they didn't understand it. That was a really neat thing, I think. So the messages had a twofold character, which was local for their time, and then that which predictive of the divine purpose in the future. Usually their message was for the covenant people, and it was about their sin and their failure, but it was also about their future. The Gentiles, when they mentioned the Gentiles in the prophets, the Gentiles were sent by God to chastise the people of Israel when they did wrong. And then we see that later on in the prophecies, they were sharers of the grace of God. It was not just for Israel alone. It was for the Gentiles also. The church, like a church corporately like we have, was not mentioned in the Old Testament prophets as such. Um, it was a twofold character of the prophets. It was a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. Two, two different sections. You had suffering and then you had glory. You had weakness and then you had power. And these things perplexed the prophets. They could not understand what they were saying themselves. They could not understand what... They, I'm saying this is what the future is going to be. I don't understand that. I don't understand it's going to, how it's going to happen. And I think that is really a, a wonderful thing, that when you can speak the words of God and you don't even understand them, and then they come to pass. Uh -huh. it's, it's beautiful. 
So they, there were two events. There was redemption through suffering and then the kingdom of glory. And these in themselves were the mysteries hid in God. We have that scripture in Ephesians. So predictive prophecy is occupied with the fulfillment of the Palestinian, the Davidic, and the Abrahamic covenants. The division of the prophets are um, pre-exile, when Jonah went to Nineveh, to the ten tribes of Israel, that's Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, and Joah, to Judah is Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. And then during the exile, we have Daniel and we have Ezekiel. And after the exile, we had Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The division of the prophets is minor prophets and major prophets. The only difference is major prophets were longer books than minor prophets. That was, that was the only difference. Um, let me move this over a little bit so we can see this over here. I have here a list of all of the prophets. Um, and this is how they are listed in the Bible. Now the paper that I passed on you has a number in front of each of these. Here, Obadiah is number one. And then um, number two is Jonah, Joel, and Amos. This is the way we're going to study it. We're going to study it by the way it was written. This was the oldest book that was written, and Malachi was the last book that was written. So that's why you have those numbers on there. That's right. So that we can do it as they actually were written and not skip around all over the place. Um, The dates are approximate because sometimes they don't even know when they had their prophecy. They just try to go by different dates that they could see in the scriptures. Any questions on that? No. Oh. Now that I see that you got Judah, Judah, Babylon, Babylon, Persia, and then only one in Israel, Hosea. Yes, most of them were to Israel and Judah, but some were to others. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I want to do this uh, pre, uh, pre-information about Obadiah. Uh, they think that his ministry was at the same time of Athaliah, who was the wicked queen, and she thought she had killed all of the descendants of David, and yet they had hidden this little baby for seven years, and then after seven years, he took over. But her reign was uh, from 841 to 835, and so they think that's about when Obadiah was writing his book. It is considered the first writing of the prophets and the first to use that formula, the day of the Lord. The book is in four parts. It's mostly about Edom and the first part is Edom's humiliation, verse 1 through 9. The crowning of the sin of Edom, verse 10 through 14. The future visitation of Edom in the day of the Lord, 15 through 16. The inclusion of Edom in the future kingdom, verses 17 through 21. 
It is the shortest book in the Bible, has only one chapter and 21 verses. Obadiah is uh, paralleled very closely with Jeremiah 49, 7 through 22. So Jeremiah probably had the book of Obadiah with him when he wrote his book. The Hebrew Obadiah, that name means worshiper of Yahweh or servant of Yahweh. There are 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament. One of these that I'm going to mention here is probably one who wrote the book. They're not sure which one actually wrote the book. But we here we have an Obadiah was an officer, governor in King Ahab of Israel's court and hid God's prophets in a cave. That's in 1 Kings 18.3. Do you have that? I have that. Okay. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Okay. That was one of the Obadiahs. The second, an Obadiah was sent by the king of Jehosh King Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles seventeen seven. Also in the third year of his reign he sent his leaders Ben Hale, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathanael, and Micah to teach in the cities of Judah. Okay, so they were to teach. The third Obadiah was one of the overseers who helped repair the temple in the time of uh, Josiah, king of Judah. That's in 2 Chronicles 34, 12. And the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jehath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam, of the sons of the Kohathites to supervise. Others of the Levites all of whom were skillful with instruments of music. Okay. And then number four, we have an Obadiah was a priest in the days of Nehemiah. Do you have that, Bob? You'll read both of those. Yeah, and it, Obadiah, uh, what is it, 9 to 38, it says, Because of all this, we make sure it's covenant, and write it, and our princesses and Levites and priests seal unto it. And then 10.5 says Haram, Mermoth, and Obadiah. Okay, so he was one of the priests that signed off on this, uh, which, which you just read, my mind just went black. He was one who signed off on this decree that they were gonna do this. Okay, the fifth one was a descendant of David. He was a descendant of King David through Zerubbabel. The sixth one was a descendant of Ishakar. He was one of the tribal leaders. Um, the seventh was a descendant of Saul. He was a Benjamite named Obadiah and a descendant of King Saul. The son of Shemaiah was another one. He was a member of the tribe of Levi named Obadiah. And these were Jews who came back from the exile in Babylon. One of David's mighty men was named Obadiah. He was listed as a second of 11 experienced warriors from the tribe of Gad who joined David's army in Ziklag. And it talks about these people, these warriors. They were fierce as lions and as swift as a deer on the mountains. The weakest among them could take on a 100 regular troops. 
and uh -huh. the strongest could take on a thousand by themselves. Really a great, great, great people. And the tenth one was the father of Ishmael. And during David's reign, he served as the chief officer of the tribe of Zebulun. The eleventh, the descendant of Joab. This Obadiah was the son of Jehiel, and he was a leader of the family of Joab. And he led 218 men who returned from exile with Ezra. The twelfth was a gatekeeper in the time of Nehemiah, one of the gatekeepers who stored, who uh, served to, to keep the storehouse uh, safe. Then we have 13, the writer of Nehemiah, of uh, Obadiah. However, they think that this one in, in 2 Chronicles 17.7, the one who was sent out by King Jehoshaphat to Judah to teach the law, they really think he was the one that actually wrote the book. Not certain, but they think that's it. The prophecy is unique because it does not dwell with Israel or Judah, but it dwells uh, on Edom and the judgment that was going to come up on them. Now, I have this little map of Edom. Of Edom. It's down here. Here is Judah and Israel. Here. Here is Moab, and here is Ammon over here, and I will mention them in just a minute. The Edomites were people that were descended from Esau. Esau had a brother named Jacob, the son of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. He was named Esau, which means Edom, which means red, probably because he had red hair, yeah. they think. Esau was settled in the area of Mount Seir and absorbed a people known as the Horites. Then when Israel came out of Egypt and they wanted to go around the wilderness and they wanted to go through this area of Edom, Edom would not let them. And so well, they were not friends with Israel at all. Covenant breakers. Yeah. Yes. And then they opposed Saul and were conquered under David and Solomon. In the days of King Jehoshaphat, Edom joined with Moab and, and Ammon, which I showed you on the map, to attack Judah. But the Lord intervened and they defeated them. The Edomites successfully rebelled against the king Jehoram of Judah, and King Amaziah of Judah brought them back under subjugation. The Edomites again attacked Judah in the days of King Ahaz. They fought side by side with the Jews in the rebellion against Rome in AD 66-70 and were crushed by Rome, and they were never heard of a people again. Never heard. So if you have Obadiah, you have Obadiah open? Anybody have Obadiah open? No. Okay, in the, if somebody, can you get to Obadiah real quick? What you need from there? I want the 10th verse. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. Destroyed forever. Uh -huh. Okay, read verse 18. Those strong words. The people of Israel will be a raging fire 
and Edom a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I spoke, have the Lord I have spoken. Okay, the Lord said there will be no survivors. Today you will not find an Edomite. They are not, there's none in existence. He keeps his word. A prophecy fulfilled. Okay, any questions about any of this? Well, I'm thinking about all the redheads. <laughs> I bought a book on, on the origin of the redhead. I did. So they, they went to all of these dates of all of these things that happened, and they probably think that Obadiah was in 843, 835 uh, B.C., 845 B.C. It makes him a contemporary of the prophet Elisha and also makes him the earliest of the prophets. He beats out Joel just by a little bit. Interesting. Um, mm. Yep, that's very interesting. So this is Obadiah. He probably sat under Elisha because prophets sat under other prophets to become a prophet. So any questions or comments that you want to add to this? Thank you for listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. If you would like to watch our message live or looking for more information about our church, visit us. Follow us on Facebook, Restoration Church.